In a smoky workshop, a young boy uses a bellows, pumping a stream of air over the hot coals in a furnace. The fire crackles and brightens with each fresh blast of air. The boy is sweating from the heat and hard work, but he doesn't let up for a second. He has to keep the fire hot enough to melt silver. A lot of silver. Beside him, an older man slides a soft square of that precious glinting metal between two halves of a die, a sort of mould. He checks the alignment, then brings a hammer sharply down on the die's end. The hammer makes a dull thud. The man opens the die and pulls out the silver. It's now stamped with a pattern. On one side glares a king's stern face, surrounded by letters spelling a royal name, Henricus. That refers to the old king Henry II, founder of the Plantagenet dynasty, who died nearly 20 years ago, but is still revered as the genius behind English government. On the other side is a short cross, encircled by the coinmaker's own name, Ralph and a reference to the location of this royal mint, London. Ralph takes a pair of metal clippers and cuts the soft, warm silver into a circular coin, an English penny. He rasps a file around the edges to smooth it. Then he tosses it into a pile of identical pennies, where it lands with a tinkle. The pile is getting big. Ralph has been working hard. So have the other coin makers in the mint, all hammering and clipping and rasping away around him. For weeks they've been receiving old pennies, melting them down and exchanging them for new, better quality money with a higher silver content. They've been doing this by order of the king, not old Henricus, but his youngest son, John. John wants to improve the quality of England's money supply to get rid of all the mangled, chopped up, forged and poorly made currency in circulation. He believes this will give people new faith in royal government and help trade. Putting the sparkle back into the English penny isn't John's only pet project though. In the last two years, he's been buzzing around the corridors of royal government like a blue bottle. One minute he's bending his officials' ears about coins, the next he's on the warpath about legal reform. He also travels constantly around the country, his royal household living out of suitcases as he pokes his nose into local affairs and personally oversees random legal cases. Forget Judge Judy, if you've got a problem... Judge John is here to help. Of course, it'll cost you. John's typical rate for hearing a legal case in person is about £100, in a time where the average wage is a few pennies a week. His subjects haven't seen anything like this for decades. John is as hyperactive and visible as his father, old Henry, was at the start of his reign in the 1150s. Back then, old Henry was busy clearing up the mess of the civil war 
known as the Anarchy. It's now 1205, and the Plantagenets have been in power in England for over half a century. So what's with the sudden enthusiasm for hands-on government? Why exactly is John rolling up his sleeves and whipping the court up and down the country like a travelling circus? Well, part of the answer is simply that John actually likes this stuff. There had to be a reason why this slippery scoundrel, nicknamed both Lackland and Soft Sword, was actually old Henry's favourite child. They bonded over a shared talent and enthusiasm for the nuts and bolts of government. Of all his siblings, John is the one who truly understands how administration works. He gets bureaucratic systems and he gets off on accounts. More than that, he shares his late father's insight that bureaucracy isn't just about shuffling figures on parchment and drafting dry legal texts. Run the right way, law and government is a money-making bonanza. And John really needs cash. Since he came to the throne in 1199, he's managed to lose about half of the Plantagenet Empire to the King of France, Philip Augustus. Normandy and Anjou are gone. Since his mother, Eleanor, died in April 1204, her old Duchy of Aquitaine has been looking dicey too. John has worked out, arguably a little too late, that he needs to spend a lot of money on a major war to win the lost family lands back. So that's why John is setting out to squeeze every last drop of royal revenue from his remaining power base, England. It's true that this famously wealthy kingdom can be very effectively juiced, as demonstrated by his father and older brother before him. To John, it must seem like you can tax and extort this place to infinity and beyond. The trouble is, John hasn't figured out that England might be rich, but its powerful barons don't have unlimited patience. Sooner or later, he's going to learn his lesson the hard way. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 4, Return of the King. It's been a year since John fled Normandy, leaving his teenage nephew Arthur dead and his castles and lands toppling to the French king Philip. According to some especially hostile chroniclers, all John's done since then has been to lounge around in bed with his wife without a thought to his duties as king or to the blood on his hands. But that's not quite the case. John's actually been quite busy. Whenever historians try to defend King John, they tend to base their case on one key argument. Yes, they admit, John very probably murdered his nephew. Yes, he may have been disliked by his people. Yes, he may have been outsmarted and outgunned by Philip Augustus. 
And yes, there was that unfortunate incident we mentioned in season one, when he went over to Ireland and literally yanked the natives' beards, causing a major diplomatic incident. But, they will tell you, John had a superpower. He was a brilliant administrator. As an esteemed medieval professor once put it, it is probable that there had never been a king who devoted himself so keenly to the job of ruling. In a limited sense, that argument stacks up. It's true that John really did understand and engage with the nitty-gritty of government. He knew where the levers of power were, he knew what happened when you pulled them, and, most importantly from his point of view, he knew how to turn a profit from governing. His father, old Henry II, had taken care to give John a decent education at the hands of one of his most brilliant royal bureaucrats, and John had paid attention. You'd have thought this was a good thing. After all, one of the reasons old Henry was such a successful ruler is that he really understood the way government worked. Henry might not have been adored by all who met him, but he was respected for his competence. Yet there are two important ways in which John isn't old Henry. The first is that he lacks some of his father's other talents – military know-how, diplomatic cunning and basic good luck. The second is that old Henry governed England at arm's length. So, for what it's worth, did Richard the Lionheart. The sheer size of the Plantagenet Empire meant that Henry was out of the country far more than he was in it. Richard basically only visited twice, once at the start of his reign and again when he was released from prison in Germany. After 1204, John is around all the time. He has no choice. He's lost Normandy and Anjou, and Aquitaine is a hot mess. There's literally nowhere else for him to go, and this starts to seriously tick people off. If you want to think of it in modern terms, imagine a typical workplace. Maybe the CEO spends most of their time gallivanting around the world with their out-of-office on, going to very important conferences and whatnot. The rank-and-file employees grumble a bit about their absent leader, but basically things tick along fine. Then suddenly there's a change of strategy. The CEO isn't working on their air miles account anymore, and suddenly becomes very invested in how the company's doing, coming to the office every day, interfering in the smallest things, peering over people's shoulders while they work, and failing to put the coffee cups in the dishwasher. Something like that happens with John after 1204. England has been used to absentee kings. Now they've got one who's around all the time, and is charging a fortune for the privilege. Which is a problem. It's a particular problem because, over the years, the Plantagenet system has developed to operate semi-independently of a monarch. There are permanent officials who handle routine business – land disputes, squabbles over inheritances, that sort of thing. If you've got an issue which needs settling by what today we would call the state, 
you apply to the relevant government department, ask for a royal order to be issued, and pay the relevant fee. Then your local sheriff will pick up anything that needs to be sorted out. I'm wildly simplifying things here, so constitutional historians might want to cover their ears for a minute, but you're getting the basic idea. For the last half a century, the king only really shows up for the most important of the VIPs, or for problems so unique and specific that they need a creative solution. Periodically, there would be a royal check-in in England to make sure the officials are doing their jobs and to clear the backlog of cases that need the king's personal attention. Otherwise, he's that CEO with his out-of-office on. By the standards of the Middle Ages at least, Plantagenet government was routine, predictable and reliable. What happens when the king, John, pitches up and turns his out-of-office off is that all at once there's rather too much government, a flurry of activity driven by the king. And while in the records this looks like John rolling up his sleeves and getting stuck in, to many people in England at the time it isn't much fun. John is a fine administrator, yes, but that also means he's an annoying busybody who can't help snooping into local affairs whether or not he's actually wanted. The English people have been used to having the best of both worlds, a powerful king whom they very rarely see. Now that's been thrown out of whack. But for John's most senior barons, the people who really count politically, all this is only part of the headache John is giving them. The other part relates to his war plans. Because the fact is, John doesn't want to be a hands-on CEO king any more than his subjects want him to be. He realises that he can't just hang out in England having fun with spreadsheets for the rest of his life. Soon, he's going to have to try and win back what Philip Augustus has snatched from him. If he lets that humiliation stand, it'll be really hard to maintain his overall authority as king. So alongside his general administrative busybodying in 1204-5, John is also stockpiling money for a war chest, while trying to whip up political support and military backing for a trip to France. First he wants to sail an army to Poitou in northern Aquitaine to make sure Philip doesn't rip that away from him. If this initial phase goes well, John might even push on to Normandy, and start undermining Philip's hold there. It's going to be a bold, expensive campaign. If it comes off though, John will be well on his way to getting his reign back on track and giving himself a reason to be out on the road more often. You'd think his barons would be clicking their heels with joy, right? Right? Wrong. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. 
On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. In the early summer of 1205, King John and William Marshall are in Portsmouth on the south coast of England. It's the most state-of-the-art Plantagenet naval base, and they're here to inspect John's war fleet. Marshall, however, is nervous because he's about to tell John something the king very much doesn't want to hear. It's not about the fleet. That's monstrous enough to impress even someone as experienced as Marshall. More than a thousand ships are anchored here, preparing for a massive expedition across the English Channel. They're being loaded with food, weapons, ammunition, and barrels of those nice shiny new silver coins, which John is going to use to keep the army supplied when it's in the field. This is as mighty as anything John's brother Richard ever put together in order to go and butt heads with Saladin on the Third Crusade. And it's nearly as pricey. John has managed to persuade his English barons to contribute to a whopping great tax known as a scootage. He's demanded that they send him knights for his army, and, where possible, join him in person. He's also piled into the war chest the cash he's earned from his judge-for-hire tour of the country. All in all, he's lumped about a quarter of his annual government revenue onto this one mission. And there are big divisions among the barons about whether John is spending this vast fortune in the right way. Many of them simply don't get why they should be helping and funding John's defence of Aquitaine. The only real tie between England and Aquitaine is the fact that they have the same ruler. For plenty of barons in England, Poitiers and Bordeaux are about as relevant to their lives as the North Pole. 
This isn't the same as backing Richard to go and defend the Holy Land, when the fate of Christianity seemed to be at stake. Aquitaine is John's personal possession, and the way many of his barons see things, if John wants to keep hold of it, that's his business, not theirs. Set against that, though, is Normandy. Here, a lot of English barons do have a dog in the fight. Since 1066, England and Normandy have been deeply intertwined, and the Plantagenet kings have consistently encouraged their barons to hold land on both sides of the Channel. William Marshall is a case in point. John has recently made Marshall the Earl of Pembroke in Wales for his loyalty to the regime. Marshall also has land in England, Ireland and Normandy. So you'd think Marshall has a vested interest in helping John get Normandy back. Except, when John lost Normandy in 1204, a lot of barons had to take emergency action to avoid losing their own lands on that side of the Channel. Several of them, Marshall included, have done that by striking a deal with Philip Augustus. They've given their oath that he is the rightful king of their lands in Normandy. They pay Philip the taxes due on their Norman estates and send the required number of men to join his army when he asks. Of course, for their lands in England, they continue to pledge loyalty to John. Now that's all well and good until Philip and John go to war. If that happens, these barons are in a very sticky situation. Technically, they owe some support and loyalty to both sides. If they fail to provide it, then the king who feels most affronted is likely to confiscate all their possessions on his side of the channel. Which means that actually, for quite a few of John's barons, a war is now the very last thing they want. And that's exactly what William Marshall tells John in Portsmouth on that summer's day in 1205. As you can imagine, it's not the easiest conversation. Here's John eyeing up his thousand-odd warships and making plans to give Philip Augustus the mother of all hidings. And here's William Marshall telling him that in fact half his barons think this is a bad idea, while the other half think it's the worst idea they've ever heard. Predictably enough, John freaks out. By God's teeth! He yells at Marshall. I can see none of my barons are with me in this. Then he says he's going to go and talk to a group of younger knights and nobles, in the hope that these young bucks will tell him what he wants to hear, that Marshall is bang out of order, an old fuddy-duddy who needs to shape up or shut up. Fair play to John, that's exactly what the younger barons do say. In doing a deal with Philip, they tell him, Marshall, and anyone else like him, is basically a traitor. Great, says John. Ah, say the young boys. But hold on now, everything we just said is all off the record. The thing is, if Marshall hears that any of them has called him a traitor, he's going to demand to defend his honour. Custom dictates that he can do that 
by offering to fight a judicial duel, meaning hand-to-hand combat to decide who's right. That, say the young barons, is where we draw the line. There's no one in England or beyond who has the bores or the skill to take on William Marshall. John nearly blows a gasket. He storms off from the meeting to go and have his dinner in a sulk. By the time the next morning rolls around, though, he seems to have put all of this out of his mind, and he's feeling better about the expedition again. But by now, more and more of his leading noblemen are starting to get cold feet. They've seen that John will at least listen to Marshall's complaints, and so they put him up to try and convince John that his great plan is going to end in tears. Back at the waterside, with the ships bobbing in front of them, Marshall takes John through the arguments against his campaign. Big as this army is, Marshall says, Phillips is even stronger. The barons don't have any real appetite to fight for Aquitaine, and they think that by attacking Philip in Normandy, John is going to cost them far more than they stand to gain. What's more, there are rumours that if John does leave England, one of Philip's closest henchmen, the Count of Boulogne, is going to take the opportunity to invade. Marshall actually gets down on his knees and begs John not to push ahead with this plan. John storms off in another mega-sulk. But the message is slowly getting through. The next day, John boards one of his ships and has it sailed up and down the coast, half surveying the channel, but mostly just killing time before he faces the inevitable. After a couple of days grumbling at sea, he comes back to land and announces that he's calling the expedition off. Naturally, he won't be paying back the taxes and other fees he imposed on his people to fund the invasion. But he's going to stay in England a bit longer before he has a proper go at Philip. On the face of it, it's not the worst outcome in the world. John hasn't actually lost the army he raised, nor has his realm been invaded behind his back. Yet it's still a dreadful humiliation. Despite all his efforts, John has managed to appear both as a reckless warmonger and as a dithering bottler. He's wound people up by hanging around when he's not wanted, and now he's wound even more people up by trying to leave. If he wasn't John, beard yanking, father and brother betraying, nephew murdering wrongen, you might even feel sorry for him. Not that it really matters. John doesn't want our sympathy. He wants Normandy back. And it's dawning on him that if he's serious about defending what's left of the Plantagenet Empire, let alone winning back what he's lost, he's going to need an almost bottomless supply of those silver pennies that coinmakers like Ralph are busy striking in the royal mints. So he has some hard questions to ponder. How can he squeeze even more money out of England without antagonising his prickly barons? And how can he fight a war they don't want when he relies on their support? Well, on that front, John is about to get lucky. Really, really lucky. 
Looming on the horizon is one of the biggest financial windfalls any King of England will ever enjoy. There's only one catch. It's going to cost him his immortal soul. That's next time on This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every Tuesday, when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode, full of weird, wonderful, and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.